0: I have been really, really eager to share what I'm going to begin today with you since a few weeks before Christmas, and I'll explain why in a minute. But um, I was reminded by the Lord as this new year comes that this month is the 16th year since I preached at Hillside for the first time. I think I might have guest preached up here once or twice when I was an elder at Christ Community Church. but, But I mean, as far as starting to put our feet in and discern whether God was calling us, to leave, what really was really having a blast at Christ Community Church. I had people, we had friends, we had uh, we'd gotten really rooted in that fellowship over seven years, and we really needed to know, Lord, you know what? what are you calling us up there? Because it's beautiful and all that, but I, you know, I'm from New York. That's not New York. It's very different, and and all that. And, you know, obviously, I've fallen in love with this place and all of you since then. But I was reminded during that season, and the Lord brought it to mind again this year as I began, that there is a mandate. And I'll speak personally for a minute, just to help you understand, the next three months or more, we are going to dive deep into the life of David. And I'll explain why today. I've never done a full-on, you know, long series on anyone's life, but if there is one to pick, besides Jesus, it's going to be David. And and you'll see as we go through his life that there is so much in there. My pastor back on Long Island used to say he's the Old Testament king doing a New Testament thing. That David had an intimacy and a walk with God that, that very few Christians even have entered into, although he had the Holy Spirit come on him. We have Spirit of God in us, and yet we've only just begun to scratch the surface, many of us, and what it means to walk with God as David did. But I remembered a mandate the Lord gave me, and, uh, you know, we have, we have a pastoral staff. We intend to care for all the needs of the saints as best we can. We intend to build up love, comfort, You know, do all the stuff that pastoral ministry requires. But there's something that burns in me, and I'm saying this just so you understand why it may seem passionate in the next few weeks. That the mandate on my life personally is to raise up a company of people who will be bold and brave and free. Who will not only face down the giant that stands before us, but will raise up sons and daughters who go after the giants that remain. And we'll get into that when we get to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel and look at David. He didn't just kill Goliath. He was after all the rest of the giants in the land, but there were going to be others he was going to send out to do that. And I feel an urgency in me about that. It's something that makes me tick. It's It's what thrives and beats in me. So yeah, I love all of you and I will endeavor to love you as best I can and build you up. But this is the primary reason for which I was sent here to Hillside was to raise up an army to raise up a company of people to know who they are, whose they are, and understand that it's not as the Israelites thought that we look like grasshoppers in the sight of all those principalities and powers that seem to be winning the day. No, it's quite the opposite, that they're grasshoppers in God's sight, and if we just understand who we are. If you were there Wednesday night, we're we're dipping into Ephesians, and as predicted, we only got like 10 verses in. Because the whole first chapter is all about our identity in Christ. It is so rich. If we understand that we were in Christ, resting in Christ before God even said, let there be light, how would we live differently? If we understood that we were chosen in Christ before He laid the foundation of the world, what would we do with our lives? If you've ever been to a workshop, they'll ask you a question about career counseling. and uh, It's a good one if you're young to do this. Well, if you're young, old, middle-aged, wherever you are, ask yourself... And I'll ask it of us all right now. What would you do with your life if you were guaranteed success? If you knew that you could not fail, what would you do? Because underlying a lot of our decisions that sometimes we call wisdom, which really is a mask for fear, is this thing that says, well, I'm not sure I want to step in that because I'm afraid of failing at it. We may not vocalize that because everyone knows Christians aren't afraid of anything, right? Righteous are as bold as lions. Only the wicked flee when no one pursues them. So we all know that we're not afraid of anything, and yet our heart says, I am afraid. If we don't do something that we know we should do, it's because we're afraid of doing it. Or we're bound. Or something. And I want to just share some things about David, you know, the, the man after God's own heart, because if we have God's heart in us, how many of you have God's heart in you? Do you know that you are In God's image, when God created the first Adam, He said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. So it's not just the image of God. You know, every human being alive still bears the image of God. We're still humans. So we are what God would look like if He put skin on. How do we know that? Because when He became incarnate, He looked like a man. You all with me? Tell me if I get too deep. I want to be deep. I think you have the same spirit of revelation I do. So yeah, maybe I've taken more time to study and think about it because I don't have to go dig ditches and you know balance books and all of what you all do the rest of the week. So yeah, I get to sit with the Lord and I love it uh, that I get to do this. But you have the same spirit of revelation and knowledge of Him as I do. And I think there's nothing you can't understand. There should never be anything that comes out of my lips you don't understand. Sorry if I throw a 10-cent word out here or there, i You know, I've tried to get rid of all the seminary language for the last 30 years, but sometimes it slips back in. But the point is, if we really, really understood our divine origins, then we would not stop. We would not fail to do anything that God put in front of us. I was just at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. How many of you have ever been there? It's really cool. It's a bunch of geeky scientists who got together and said, you know what? The Bible is not only accurate of a story about you know God and all of His works among humankind since the beginning. It's also scientifically accurate, or else it's untrue. And so they go through all these things about creation and the floods, fascinating stuff. But I was in the section talking about origins and remembering back to the day when I believed in the Big Bang and the theory of evolution. I believed in God too, and I believed in Jesus Christ. I believe he died and rose again. It had nothing to do with how I lived my life. That part was still, I didn't get the last half of the gospel message. It was just the, God loves you. I said, yeah, that's great. God loves me, and I'm still going to live in sin. That's fine. You know, and that's where I was at. But I remember this, this feeling in college, and I've shared my testimony. I remember this feeling in college of if I just, if I came from primordial soup, That's that supposedly the the stuff that the first life form came from, according to the theory of evolution. If that was my origin story, you know, and you see a great superhero movie or something like that, that you can't wait to see the origin story. How did they get to be the way they are today? And the origin story. If my if our origin story is uh, you used to be goo and now you're you, you know, if you you just there's no meaning in life. There's absolutely no point in anything. You're going to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's been the prom- primary atheist philosophy for generations. So our origins matter. What we, you, where we came from matters. What's the first thing we ask somebody when we're getting to know them? What do you do? And where are you from? Where are you from? And I, all my life have said, well, I'm from New York. But the truth is, I'm from in Christ. My origin and yours is we were in Christ and He chose us in Him. For he laid the foundation of the earth in had good works for us to walk in. He foreordained a life full of work, a life full of not the kind of work that feels like chores or feels like, oh man, you know, God, God make the donuts. Where man, that one came from 40 years ago. You know, <laughs> so you remember those old Dunkin' Donuts commercials? You know, it's the sludging. I gotta go. Oh, man, I gotta go out to work. Not that kind of work. God doesn't do that kind of work. His work is enjoyable. His work it makes you feel alive when you're working. You know the feeling. All of us know the feeling. When you do something you love doing, you can get lost for hours. Somebody has to remind you, hey, it's dinner time. You didn't even have breakfast yet. Cuz just so lost. in it. I'm talking about that kind of work. He had a life full of that kind of work laid before us. And then he said, okay, I've got it all planned out. Let there be light. And then all of a sudden, things started taking shape. That's who we are. That's where we're from. So for us... Our supernatural origin and our legacy of triumph that we embody through Christ in us demands that we lead the world into heavenly places. Just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you believe that you are called to lead? I've got three, maybe four months to convince all of you to raise your hands. I mean, we even use the phrase, right? I led somebody to Christ this week that's leadership it means going in front of somebody and showing them hey this would be awesome why don't you try this leading means influencing people leading means you can say follow me because i'm on a journey and man if you follow me like i'll follow christ man what an adventure you're about to have oh the places you'll go the things you'll do the, the people you'll meet just follow me we are all called to leadership, and there's a demand on us. There's a heavenly demand on every one of us that we lead the world, that we make disciples of all nations, and we lead the world into heavenly places. There's not a one of us excused from that. We are not a people that are border campers, as Patty so well exhorted us last week. We're not to live on the place of safety, right on the edge of, hey, I got my ticket to eternal life, and now I'll just live the American dream for the next few decades, long as I've got. That's not what we're called into. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you now that a lot of the dissatisfaction that we feel in life, it has nothing to do with the external circumstances, nothing to do with our job stinks, our boss stinks, our teacher, whatever, all those things that we look to. Most of the dissatisfaction I would propose that every human alive experiences is this nagging sense that comes from the core. I mean like the deepest part of what makes us us that said, this is not what I'm made for. There is so much more. There is so much more to be poured out. And you know, the biggest, the, the worst pain, and the older you get, the more you experience this, is the pain of regret. The pain of all the woulda, coulda, opportunities missed. You know, how many adults in the room would not wish, can I just redo my teenage years? Man, I would love to do that decade over in my 20s. I would love to do that decade over. I would do it so much better if I knew what I know now. It's like every 40, 50-year-old's fantasy, 60-year-old's fantasy. Why? Because the power of regret is there. And what we've got on the inside of us is this beating heart of Christ in us that says, oh man, if you only knew, if you only knew what the world would look like if you would step up. If you only knew what the world would look like if you wouldn't be trapped and bound in this thing. You are made to change things. You're made to be the answer to the prayer the Lord prayed and taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. So the the number one reason why people don't step into leadership is that we don't feel qualified for it. Right? Is there anyone in the Scriptures who didn't argue with God, hey, you got the wrong guy when God called them? right? You can think of a dozen examples right off the top of your head. Not a one didn't say at first, like what Peter said, oh, stay away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Everybody had their reason to say, uh, let someone else do that. I'll follow, but I don't want to be out in front. I don't want to be the point of the spear. I don't want to be the first to go in. Let someone else go Let the pioneers go first and settle the land. I'll go move in the city and I'll, you know, whatever. I'll make hats for them. What? (laughs) Why hats? (laughs) I'll go, you know, I'll go. It's just somebody else conquer the territory first. But you and I were born for darkness because as Todd exhorted us with the the salt of the earth and if the salt loses its savor, what's the point? We're made to go someplace that's in need of what salt provides. We're made to go in dark places where there's a need for what light provides. And if we don't, if we live our lives in that safe country, and we stay back in this place where we're just kind of doing our thing and raising our kids and you know making our money and, and all of that, there's a dissatisfaction. And the older we grow in Christ, the more that dissatisfaction. I hope I uh, God anoint me to stir up the dissatisfaction if you're not feeling it. And I'm not saying everybody's got to be in, uh, you know, we think leadership, we think, well, I've got to be in charge of something. No, people that want to be in charge of something should not be in leadership. I'm deeply suspicious of people that like to have power, that like to have authority over other people. I think, man, you'd make a great slave master, but I'm not sure you're the kind of leader that God's looking for in this day, and it's not the kind of leader that the world's in need of. And we'll really dig that out as we look through David's life over the next... No, God always uses imperfect people. You know why? It's the only kind He's got to work with. And one of my favorite things about studying David's life, really the life of anybody in the Scriptures besides Jesus and Enoch. And Enoch is not fair because he just walked with God and God took him. I don't know what he, if he ever did anything wrong or not, but I don't know. You ever feel like, man, could I be Enoch? Does somebody even know what I'm talking about? It says in Genesis, Enoch walked with God and then he, God just took him. And that's his testimony. He even made it to Hebrews 11 on that testimony. Man, maybe he to suffer a little bit or something, you know? Nope. Walk with God. God said, okay, you're mine. Boop. <laughs> what was I about to say? Oh, so God just uses, He uses imperfect people because that's all He's got to work with. I was just talking with a friend the other day about, um, politics about people who go into government now. Man, wouldn't it be great if we'd have some more humble, godly, wise people that would run for office? And then we were talking a little bit. I said, you know why nobody wants to do it, right? Look at what happens to them. Good, honorable, righteous people that offer themselves. That man, sometimes they're not even living sacrifices once they get out there." I mean, who could stand, and everybody knows this, who could stand under the kind of scrutiny that people who are experts are digging in to your past and digging into your history, who could withstand that? Who could withstand, you know, now all you young people, you got tweets going back from when you were a dumb 12-year-old or whatever app you use, and they'll dig those things out, they're 30 years old, but they'll hold them to, like you said it yesterday. But no, it's like the accuser of the brethren dominates what gets said about people who step up into office. So, I say that maybe to urge us, let's not be that guy. For one thing, let's be a community of people that when somebody's willing to offer themselves in leadership, let's be their biggest cheerleaders. Even if we disagree with them, man, should I get on this, Lord? Yeah, just one second. He answered me quickly. We think because they're about, they're doing evil things, and there are people in leadership that are moving forward with evil things, we think because we disagree with their vision or their you know politics or even their faith or non-faith that, that they become our enemy now and I want to uh, I want to urge you read the book of Daniel just the first like 5 6 chapters is enough Daniel served under demonic leaders who thought they were god incarnate literally I know maybe you said that about a boss or something he just thinks he's god incarnate no these guys really did and some of them like Nebuchadnezzar demanded people worship them but Daniel somehow kept his heart toward that king toward all four of them that he served, and he was still praying for them. He was still supporting them. When he heard about a dream of judgment coming to Nebuchadnezzar, dude raised his city, his hometown to the ground, Jerusalem, killed his parents, took him and all of his friends and all the other youth into captivity, all the best, stole everything that Israel had. And the judgment dream comes. Daniel knows what's about to happen. And before interpreting the dream, he says, May this dream be for your adversaries and its interpretation to those who hate you. You know how he addressed him: O king, live forever. O king, live forever. i got to admit, I have never once prayed that over a president. Oh president, live forever. I'm, I'm on a journey with this too. I'm not saying we support the vision that we put ourselves behind the demonic things that, that they want to do. But for them as a person, they just stepped up into a leadership position and occupy an office that God established. So to speak against the man is to speak against the office. That was more than a minute, but I'm going to stop there because we're going to do more of that because David embodied this better than almost anybody else in the script. Well, really better than anybody else. in the, Well, same as Daniel. Compare them. I don't want to compare them. They both rocked at it. Let's, let's leave it at that. There is a... Um, so I was talking with this friend about it, and we both at the same time said, let's not be tired or a cold, timid souls. And if you're familiar with the poem uh, from, that's uh, actually a speech given by Teddy Roosevelt. It's called Man in the Arena. Anybody familiar with it? I'm going to read it to you. Because I read this for the first time years ago, and it, it just, to me, uh, I was weeping by the time I finished it. It was in a book I read by Dutch Sheets, and it, it pierced me through and i felt validated and convicted all at once validated in you know the thing that where the accuser comes to criticize the times that you fail when you're trying to do what's right when you're trying to lead when you're trying to pursue righteousness in whatever way you can and for the times that my mouth has been used to criticize those who are willing to risk it who are willing to put their lives out there for the sake of serving others and, uh, and so it goes like this it's not the critic who counts It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly. It's like today, old Steve, you know, my Giants finally made it to the playoffs. I'm proud of them for that. And I couldn't watch the game. I just couldn't do it. Old Steve back in high school today would have been armchair quarterbacking everything they did wrong in that game. But then there was this commercial. I gotta admit, I wasn't convicted by God even about this. It was a, a commercial series. Remember these commercials that went out? You couldn't make it in the NFL. You remember those? And they were all about things that what it's actually like. And I've been to a few games. And when you can hear somebody get hit from a hundred yards away, I'm like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I could not do that. So who am I to criticize that? And now I've realized one of the things that aggravates me the most are people who criticize those who do great things who couldn't even begin, who are too cowardly to do it themselves and couldn't even begin to do it themselves. And so my mouth is shut when it comes to criticism. And now I rebuke people, so don't do it in front of me. When they start criticizing people who at least go for it who at least are brave enough, even if failure is certain. Do you know sometimes God calls us to do things even though we're going to fail at it? Do you know that? He told the prophet, go and preach to the people. They're not going to listen to you, but I want you to go and preach anyway. has yeah, sign me right up. That would be great. You know, I think of every moment I'm going... How come nobody's moving or saying anything? You know, you want to amen yourself in the middle of it. And God told the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to send you, but they're going to, they're not going to listen. In fact, they're going to lock you up when they're done with you. That there is failure involved. And that's who, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while he's daring greatly. And this is, my, this is the line. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. There are no cold and timid souls in this room. There are no cold and timid souls listening to the sound of my voice over online or on the podcast. You are not a cold and timid soul. You are filled with the Spirit of Christ who looked death in the face and said, go ahead, try your best. Who said, not only you could try your best on me, but I'll take it for everybody else too. I'll be the point of the Spirit. I'll look death in the face and say, nice try, buddy. That's who lives in us. So there is no cold, timid soul. Don't be that guy. And that's why we're looking at David. Because David, and today I want to share the the first secret. Now, as we go through David's life, I'd like to point out opportunities where David could have fallen short and he could have ended his journey. And and I'll share why in just a minute here. But um, David had a lot of things that he had to overcome. And there's one thing that David had, and some of you already know what it is, one thing that David had that enabled him to overcome every obstacle, every stumbling point. And there are, along the path to destiny, the bodies of those who fell short at some point. Some kind of thing where living God's way or following after God, trusting Him, even in times of failure, grief, and loss, that where we fall short. And my heart and, and God's desire for every one of us is that we run our race with perseverance and we finish well that we complete, that we can look back at our last breath, at our lives, not with regret, but with a heart that says, I'm not going to the grave until the purpose for God in my generation is complete, which is what was said about David. So this really began to stir as we were preparing for Christmas, and I was reading through the Christmas Scriptures, and you know, I, I mean, I've read you know, Luke, I mean, I've read that before, I knew Jesus. And the stories, you know, you you read the story over and over again, but something this time really struck me and came out at me, and it made me really, uh, I mean, if you've been with me for a while, you know that David's going to show up about every three to six months on average. I love the man. Other than Jesus, my favorite dude in the Bible, David. Man after God's own heart, succeeded big, failed big, sinned big, repented big. He's got it all. He's the most related, other than Peter maybe. But you know, Peter, we have to add in and speculate a lot. David, we got it right there in living color. All of his successes, all of his failures, everything that made him great, everything that made him awful, it's all right there. He is as human as it gets. You know, we got Jesus for an example, but he never messed up. So we like David because we take comfort in, well, if he could do it, I could do it. Right? That's the message of... That's all of our testimony, really. You realize that, right? Right? The world's looking at us and saying, well, if that clown could do it, I guess I can. That's our testimony. It's Christ in us, man. It's all about Jesus. All about what God's able to do, yeah, even with somebody like me. So, an angel Gabriel came to Mary famously, and, and he began to say to her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. New name of God introduced for the first time. None of the prophets used that name. Here it is, there's a new name of God, and every other name from that day forward comes back to the name Jesus. And every other revelation about the names of God that had been, come now and get there, find the summation in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. So you shall call His name Jesus, and um, there it is. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Oh, I've read over that for decades and it struck me. The throne of his father, David. This is God incarnate. This is Emmanuel. This is the king of all kings. But he's going to say, you know what? When I come into the earth, you know whose throne I want to sit on? Not Nero Caesar. or It would have been Claudius, I guess, at that time. or No, it was Augustus. Anyway, one of them Caesars. Who don't even matter anymore, right? They faded into history. We just tell stories about them because the king of all kings did exactly what God said he would. No, I don't want the throne of Caesar. I don't want Herod's throne. I want the throne of David. He made, he made a spot for me to sit on with the way he lived his life. He created a throne in the earth that even the throne of heaven could say, yeah, when I come down, I'm going to sit on that throne. There was something about the way David lived his life, something about the way he walked with God, something about the way David honored God, and something about the way David was as a king that made God say that throne. There were many kings to follow. There was one king who came before. We'll take a quick look at him before we go today. But he said, David, that's where I want to sit. And uh, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Man, talk about a pregnancy test. Thank you. Now what? (laughs) Why did he say this? 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David. After David became king, he'd been in the wilderness for over a decade. He'd been holding his integrity while he was being hunted down for his life. He had become king and was anointed king first at Hebron, only over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes refused to submit themselves to him. There was a seven-year war for the throne. David won that war. He became king over all the house. All twelve tribes were now under the authority of King David. His first act as king, anybody know what it was? Yes, you do. You're just afraid to say it out loud. He brought the ark to Jerusalem. How many of you knew that, but you were afraid to say it out loud? How many of you are afraid to raise your hand right now and admit that? <laughs> uh-huh. I know you knew that. So, I, look, this room... And by the way, why I love Wednesday night so much, it's because we're studying the book of Ephesians. There are revelatory teachers in that group. I learned a couple of things Wednesday night from what the Lord spoke through their mouths. Don't you... hold so. so don't you sell yourself short <laughs> if you know what you know then then proclaim it. don't be afraid I, I don't mind preaching and hearing some feedback i know we're not like a black pentecostal church or an italian pentecostal church is going to be all loud and moving and stuff like that i mean i know where i live now i understand the culture i've been around for a little while but don't ever, for fear of getting it wrong or fear of failure, not do something that, that's in you. I, I know you didn't want to say it out loud, but that's fine. Yeah, he brought the ark to Jerusalem. He's dancing. He set it up and, and he put it in a tent. And, and initially, I don't know when he made the decision, but you know, the point of bringing the ark back was to put it in the tabernacle of Moses, which was still in effect. To give it to the high priest and the priests so they could do their whole thing in the tabernacle. And somewhere in the middle of dancing, David's like... I'm not allowed in that place. I'm not from the tribe of Levi, and I'm a king, not a priest. You can't have it. (laughs) I'm going to put the ark in a little tent right next to my house, and we call that the tabernacle of David, which God said when He's going to rebuild things, Amos 9-11, He said, I'm going to rebuild David's fallen tabernacle. That's the one I like. The one without all the ritual, the one without all the ceremony. I like it when people just love my presence so much that they can't live without it. David should have been struck dead for what he did. And we'll look at that when we get there. It was illegal to go before the ark of God unless you were a high priest and only once a year, once it was set up in the Holy of Holies, David got away with it and so did everybody who came under his covering in that ministry. Priests dancing and worshiping around that thing 24-7 until they built the temple. And that's David. So he did that. Then he was sitting in his tent one day, in his house one day, this nice house in Jerusalem, you know, King's Palace kind of house. He's looking out his window at this little tent with some curtains on it. and Man, I live in this really nice house and God lives in this little pup tent outside. Something's not right about this. So he called the prophet. He said, Nathan, the prophet Nathan. He said, Nathan, i got to build something for God. And Nathan at first said, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want, man. You're the king. That's great. Sounds like a great idea. But God visited Nathan and said, no. right, look, I have lived in tents. I've lived in tents. <laughs> for all the years I've been walking with my people. Do you really think I need? Dude, think about it for a minute. The heavens <laughs> declare my glory. I have everywhere in the universe it isn't big enough. It all came from inside of me. That's not big enough to fit me. You go put me in a nicer house. Thanks. I love the thought. God honored that thought. God honored his heart. And he said, all right, you can't build it because you got blood on your hands. Your son's going to build it, but I'll let you do it. I mean, I'm not, I think God was in part like, damn, man, I finally got free. And I'm not stuck in that stuffy 10 by 10 cubit room. And now you're going to put me back in? <laughs> okay, if that's what you want, that's fine. You know, you see my tongue in my cheek, right? God done lit, all right. So I'll make sure we're tracking (laughs) together. And he said, look, David, because I hear your heart, I see your heart, I hear your desire. You honor me first. The first thing you wanted to do when you became king wasn't to build yourself a big luxurious palace, make this special guard for yourself, glorify yourself. The first thing you wanted was for me to be with you and you won't do it without me. I've been waiting for this all my life. I've been waiting for someone like this since the days of Moses, my friend, who cared more about face-to-face with me than he did the fact that he was leader of my people. I've been waiting for a man like you for centuries. Can you imagine God saying that about you and me? Oh, I've been waiting for someone just like you to go into this dark place and take my presence there. I've been waiting for you to be born Since I imagined you before I laid the foundations of the earth, because you honor my presence and you love me more than you love your own life. Man, the things we'll do together now. The places we're going to go, the world's never going to be the same after we get through with it. And God found that in David, so he said, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to one-up you, David. You want to make a house for me? I'm going to make a kingdom for you, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. This is what we call an unconditional promise of God. It means there were no conditions now placed on David. Like if you do this, then your kingdom and your house will endure before me forever. Then your throne shall be established forever. It's an unconditional promise. God just made up His mind. Your kingdom's going to endure. The fulfillment of this came a thousand years later when Jesus Christ became incarnate and Gabriel came and said, "Guess what? You know how that's going to happen, right here. Jesus is going to sit on your throne, and that's how it's going to endure forever. There's not going to be humans on the earth. The throne of David was never reestablished since they came back from captivity. They had false kings, they had half Jew kings and stuff, Herods and whatnot. But this got fulfilled through Jesus Christ, fathom living in such a way that God would be pleased to become incarnate in our descendants." Imagine doing something in the way we go about our lives, the way we walk by faith, the way we honor God in all things, the way we, we just go about how we do life, that a thousand years from now, if Jesus tarries, you know you have to always include that disclaimer right now, if Jesus tarries, a thousand years from now, God would say, because of the sake of my servant Steve, and my servant Jackie, my servant Lori, because of the sake of my servants, I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing. Fathom living in such a way? I'm going to tell you it's simpler than it than it sounds. It's not easy. It's not the path most take. But it is simple. It means simply just keep walking with God. Actually walking with God. The things that we do in this life leave an inheritance to our descendants, both natural and spiritual, for generations to come. The only question is going to be, what will that inheritance be? As with all inheritances, sometimes the next generation will be faithful with it. Sometimes they won't. You know, you track through David's lineage and there were a few bright spots. Mostly his kids went off. I mean, Solomon himself went off worshiping other gods. He he didn't even carry one generation of the inheritance he received from his father David. and uh, generations to come might enjoy the inheritance, might not enjoy the inheritance. It's true with natural inheritance. It's true with spiritual inheritance. But long-term, God's eye is on that inheritance. God's eye is on... Look at how God was on David's inheritance. He told Solomon after God said, all right, look, you, you done built a temple for me, and then you put pagan gods all around the inside of it. Do you know Solomon did that? Why is this man who ever lived, and he put idols in the tabernacle in the temple right next to the holy of holies how he was instructed as mercy miracle of god but god said to him in a word of judgment he said look i'm i'm going to judge you and kingdom's going to be divided your boys are going to divide the kingdom after you you go and rest with your fathers but nevertheless i will not do it in your days for the sake of your father david Because I loved your father and made covenant with him, you're not going to receive a judgment you deserve right now. Fathom living in such a way that our kids would benefit from our righteousness. That our kids would benefit from our walk close with God. That we'd leave that kind of a heritage for our kids. Later in the days of Abijam, for David's sake, the Lord as God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son. Abijam should have been judged and, and finished in his day because... Uh, And because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He had not turned aside from anything that he commanded in the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Spoiler alert, more on that when we get to that story. God didn't judge these kings uh, in Jehoram's day. However, the Lord God was not willing to destroy Judah, though they were worshiping every other god, sacrificing their children to the god Moloch. Do you know what that involves? Not going to get gruesome. But but firstborn burned alive. That was your sacrifice. They were doing that in Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of peace. They were doing that right there. And, and God said, look, I'm not going to destroy you. Why? Because of David. Because of David. Uh, uh, Hezekiah was you know, dying of a disease. And God said, look, I'm going to add 15 years for your life. I'll deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I'll defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. He made a covenant with David that even when the people of God, his offspring were unfaithful, God said, I'm going to protect that covenant because of what that man did when he was living. How many works of darkness, I wonder, have been thwarted, postponed, completely demolished just because of promises that God had made to his people. How many of us have done it already? How many of us have such a life? or can and will have such a life, that 10, 20, 80 years from now, 5, 10, 15 generations from now, God says, because my servant lived this way, I'm going to push back the judgment that that place deserves. Maybe that's the reason why the United States is still endured, after murdering millions of babies. Maybe that's why we're still here. Because God made covenant. He said, I'm not going to destroy this nation. There are people that made covenant with me and I with them, and I'm going to push back the judgment that the enemies. Eager to have his rightful dues. The enemy's eager to have his blood price for all of what's happened. But I'm not going to let him do it. Why? Because some people made covenant with me and I with them because they loved me and they walked with me. That may be exactly what we're experiencing. Not only that, but David lived in such a way. You know, we're looking at David, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, And when you say, man, David, why David? And you know, goodness, he committed adultery. He was a polygamist he had the dude you know that was married to the woman he committed adultery with who was one of his mighty men one of his best friends murdered in the middle of war used his royal authority to get the job done counted the people as if the kingdom belonged to him why why him you know why boy you know there's so much failure in his life his family a dysfunctional mess of all the sword never did depart from his house and and all of these things why david of all people And yet God says he lived in such a way that every king to follow was measured by whether they walked like David walked. Amaziah, he did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like David his father. So he fell a little short. On David, that's the standard, the measuring rod for every king to follow. Hezekiah, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Jehoshaphat, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he followed the example of his father David did in his earlier days and didn't seek after the Baals. He said this over Ahaz, a word of judgment. Ahaz was 20 years old and became king. He, He served 16 years and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. It's just an amazing thing. Uh, David, we, we know that, that David lived as a man and David failed greatly, but he, he paid a great price to establish his, his inheritance in the Lord. He paid a great price before he became king and he didn't stop paying a price when he became king. Throughout his entire days, David was used by God to establish something. It was the throne that Jesus would come and live on. But David lived in that way and he paid a great price for it. You know, For all of us, I, I've really, as I shared, temped back on my criticism of presidents, governors, people that occupy positions of authority. I had the privilege of meeting one of our governors in person. I won't name him, but he was a, let's just say his vision was not anything to do with what I felt a good godly vision for the state would be. I remember hearing his heart with a small group of pastors. We were about to pray for him. He was a Jewish man, but he was going to let us pray for him He teared up when we prayed for him, but I remember him sharing his heart. And I had to repent when I went home of the judgment that I'd made about this man, thinking, well, he just doesn't care about anybody but himself, or else he'd agree with all the policies I think we should be doing. And he, through tears, was sharing about the burden and the love he had for all the people of the state. Now, I believe he was misguided and deceived in his vision for the state, but I couldn't deny the man had a heart and believed with all of his heart that he was doing what was right and was paying a tremendous price. I mean, to be slandered and maligned in the news and you know the gossip mill that news has become all over the place, the man paid a great price, and so did David. One quality of his life stood before God. There was just one quality that remained consistent throughout his life, and it served as a good reason for God to use him as a template for all to follow. And here it is, when we're introduced to David's name, Not his name. When we're introduced to David for the first time, it came on a day that Saul the king had first stumbled. Saul the king, first king of Israel. Uh, I feel bad for the man. If you've read through 1 Samuel, you know this poor guy didn't even want to be king. The people demanded a king from God. The people said, we got to have a king to go fight our battles. We need to have a king to go out and do all this stuff for us. And he was hiding behind the baggage on the day of his coronation. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else had. all the outward look of a king. Everybody said, Whoa, good pick, Samuel. He looks like a king. People are really going to be afraid of us now if he's out in front of the army because he's so big and strong. And it'll be great. And he had some victories. To his credit, he united 12 tribes that until now, you read the book of Judges, they were all over the map. Everyone to your own tents was the word of the day. But under him, the kingdom got, be, was brought together and began to get established. He, he did that. He had some victories. He was a man of valor. He led Israel's armies in triumph. He started out great. Then came this day where God told him through the prophet, hey, meet me at such and such a place. We're going to make an offering. And after the offering, God's going to deliver the enemies into your hand. Well, the prophet was on charismatic standard time maybe. He's running a little late. He didn't get there. One of you got that. Come on, at least smile when I'm trying to be funny. You know, I keep the dad jokes to a minimum at least, but he was uh, running late. He didn't get there in time, so they made the sacrifice, and as soon as they finished making the sacrifice, the prophet shows up. Some, something in me wonders, just knowing Samuel a little bit, he's another worthy character study, by the way. I think he was hiding behind a bush waiting to see if the man would do it or not. Because that's what prophets are like, you know. <laughs> not all of them. <laughs> I mean, I haven't met any that aren't like that. But no, I'm just kidding. He would probably hide in there, and as soon as he made the sacrifice, he go, like, what are you doing? This is not what God told you to do. He said, yeah, I told you to wait. And he said, look, here, here's how it goes. Um, I would have, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel Forever. He had potential to have the same promise that David got after him. I would have established your kingdom forever. Now that messes with we we're having a discussion about foreknowledge, predestination, and all that. So, was, where, where's, was he predestined to... Almost have a forever, sorry, sorry, I should have messed with your theological heads right there. <laughs> but he would have, but what was the problem? Well, as soon as the prophet came and confronted him, he made all these excuses. Oh man, you know, the people, the pressure. You don't know what it's like. You're just a prophet. You don't know what it's like to be king. He was like that in response. And, and he said, but now your kingdom will not endure, for the Lord has sought out, Am I up to the Lord has sought out after himself, a man after his own heart literally you know we use that expression and it's made its way into modern english oh that's a man after my own heart right there and by that we mean he loves something that i love or he does something in a way that i would do it myself the deeper fuller meaning of it of how the hebrew actually is is that is a man who has a heart just like mine i have found myself a man who embodies me who gets me and who has my heart on the inside of him. He's going to be my friend. He's going to have the throne. A man with a heart just like his. How many of you have a heart just like Jesus? I'm going to tell you, you know what the accuser just said to half of you? Oh yeah, what about, right? What about the failures? What about the heart is deceitfully wicked? Who can know it? What about all of that? you understand in the new covenant there's a heart transplant that went on this is basic foundations you are not a sinner saved by grace you have a new heart we have a new heart we don't have the old heart now we have a new heart but we have old habits some of those die hard right we have old ways we have strongholds of thinking things that trip us up along on our walk. but that doesn't mean that we don't have God's heart on the inside that's the that's the reason for conviction we don't even need Holy Spirit from the outside to convict us when we do wrong, because a heart beating on the inside says you're not living right. That This is not what I was made for. It's like our heart is screaming. This isn't what we're made for. This isn't what we should be doing. This isn't where we should be right now. It's a gift, this new heart that we have. And that's what David had, and that's a, a miracle. He's the only one that God said that about in the Old Covenant. That man has, it's like he has a new heart. He has my heart on the inside of him. And so the Lord's going to appoint him rule over your people because you did not keep what the Lord commanded you. Now, let me just pause for a moment because Saul had only got impatient and made a sacrifice to God before the prophet arrived. David, as I just shared a few moments ago, had a man murdered using his royal authority, committed adultery with that man's wife first. He'd... He was a polygamist. You know, just because David had multiple wives doesn't mean God condoned it. Sometimes stories are told in the Bible without commentary. Was it wrong for David to have more than one wife? Oh, say yes with more zeal than that, guys. Yes, it's always wrong. It's always wrong. One wife. Since the beginning, it's never changed. God's never been for polygamy. Even if some of His people have been polygamists. David was. David was. David did all, I mean, that's, how many of you, if you had a scale of sin, I got impatient and I started the worship service early, or I killed somebody using my royal authority and had, I was too cowardly to do it myself, I had my right-hand man do it for me. Which one? Who's going to be hanged today? So we got David, this man after God's own heart, or man with a heart like God's doing that, and God judges the king who started worship early. Now, I wanna, now, does that seem unjust? Unjust, like an injustice? To anyone else? Gee, yeah, if we got scales like we have, holy cow! Holy, I mean, don't not holy cow. <laughs> That's what the problem was. No, right? <laughs> we don't. We don't do holy cows. This is. <laughs> I so look, I grew up listening to the Yankees and Phil Rizzuto. I got holy cow. Some of you know what I mean. But holy cow, it's in my head forever. Sorry. It's what goes on in here. You should thank God that everything doesn't come spilling out. That I'm thinking. <laughs> we see Samuel, We see rather Saul's heart revealed a couple of chapters later. After now, he's been disqualified from king, but now God's really going to say, okay, enough's enough. Now I'm going to take action. Now I'm going to anoint David. Now I'm going to send the prophet to go. It's time to initiate the new thing because you're done. So, so if you thought maybe that if, if Saul's repentance was genuine, it was already too late for him to be king, but at least he could have had a peaceful reign for the rest of his days. Chapter 15, he failed to kill all the Amalekites. That's another word about you know why God would tell him to do that. And he, he, so he left a few things behind, including the king, including a bunch of sheep. And they made some sacrifices. The prophet came and said, what are you doing? Why did God have to send me to you again? How, what, what part of all is unclear to you? All. There shouldn't be anything, any remnant of a Malachite left on planet Earth right now. That was your commission. And he said, um, well, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, and that's what you do, right? Because <laughs> you got the prophet according to the Scripture, whose word never falls to the ground standing in front of you. You're not going to lie to him successfully. And whatever he says is going to happen. You know, when Samuel came to town, you know what his greeting was? Do you come in peace? That's what they said when he came to anoint both kings. Do you come peaceably? So he says, all right, look, I, I did transgress the command of the Lord because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Fear of man is the number one reason why we fall short of doing what God called us to do. What will the people think? What will the people say? You've got to learn how to tune out those voices criticizing the man in the arena that you and I are. You are, I are the man in the arena. We are called to be filled with the sweat and the mud and all of the things that it's going to take to turn darkness into light. It doesn't happen by making proclamations from a peaceful place. It comes by being willing to get in there and get dirty. And yeah, sometimes fail, sometimes fail big. To be willing to get marred in the middle of the battles. That's what it's going to take. So, are right, the people, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And he said, No, no, no. You rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord's rejected you, King. Samuel grabbed or Saul grabbed hold of Samuel's robe and he tore it. He said, Don't don't leave right now. If the people see you walking away from me right now, they're going to know that God just rebuked me. He said, uh, uh, how about just, you know, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and here it is, and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. That's what Samuel, or Saul said. That's 1 Samuel 15, verse 30, that I may worship the Lord your God. What's the difference between David and Saul? There it is right there. If God is a second-hand relationship, kids, You don't have relationship with God just because your parents do. As you grow, you've got to take it on yourself and learn how to walk with God. Hopefully, you have parents who are willing to teach you and show you this is how you walk with God. These are the things that grieve Him. These are the things that bring joy to Him. This is how to treat God like a friend. Would you treat one of your friends like that? Well, God's no different. He wants friends. He wants people who walk with Him and, and love Him, where David, on the other hand, he was like, man, I am not going to be king unless I have the presence of God right with me. When David sinned, you've all read Psalm 51, he didn't say, oh God, I sinned great. Could you still let me be king? He said, oh man, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Take the kingdom. Take everything else I've got. But don't you, don't you leave me now. That's David's heart. That's what carrying God's heart feels like. That's what a heart after God feels. Looks like that in the middle of failure, in the middle of everything, having God's heart means running to the Lord instead of running away from God. You know, that's the first thing that happens when we're born again. We stop as Adam and Eve did, hiding from God, running away from God when we blow it. And instead, our instinctive reaction is to run to Him. Say, I need you, I blew it again. That's, That's a converted heart. That's what a heart after God's own heart looks like. I'm not running away. I'm not going to hide. What a dumb thing to hide from God anyway. Where are you going to go? David even knew that. He said, we're going hide from your presence. I could go to the highest place. You're up there. I go to the base of Sheol. You're there. I can't get away from you, and I love it. Man after God's own heart runs to God instead of away through failures and through triumphs. When we fail and we fall short of the glory of God, we do something, we say something, we think something, We live in such a way that we've been a failure. We've tried to do something, sometimes even by faith. You know how many have prayed for the sick and they haven't gotten healed when you prayed? Is there anyone in this room? There is no super ministry. You know, we got superhero ministries out there. You know, at least that's how some of us view them. Not a one of them that doesn't have testimonies of dozens or hundreds. And it feels like a failure. What do you do? I get knocked down, I get back up again. I pray again the next time. So we bring God in our failures and we bring God in our successes as we'll see by looking through David's life. He did better when he was running for his life than he did as king, maintaining that intimacy with God. The throne is demanding. Success, treasures. You know, why do you think Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why? You got something else you could lean on now. You could almost get the feeling like I don't need God anymore. I have everything I want. And that that's why, because you have something to to substitute for the presence of God that once you were desperate for, now you say, I can just rest now. I'm going to finish living out my days and go on into glory and forget that I need God as much now as I did the day that I was living on daily bread. We bring God in our griefs, inviting God in when tragedy strikes. Grief means I lost something I loved. And, and when I lose something I love, here the instinctive response for many is to pull away from God and pull away from anybody who represents God, most especially His people. And instead, God said, look, don't forget Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was intimately acquainted with grief. Run to Him in that He knows exactly what it feels like. He knows exactly what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it feels like to lose a friend. He knows what it's like to experience death. He knows what it's like to be rejected by the people he'd done nothing but love. He knows exactly what it feels like. And he carried the grief of every human who's ever lived. All the things that have been lost, every war, every disease, every life that's been lost, every career that's been lost. He knows all about it. So we invite him into our griefs. So we'll see that as we look at some of David's psalms. You know, how, you know, he commemorated every single painful event of his life by writing another worship song to the Lord that's how he handled grief right now I need God more than ever because right now I'm pretty angry with him right now I'm pretty frustrated so I'm gonna worship I'm gonna write a new song and they're gonna sing it forever because you better you ever you ever ask or say to God you better do something good with this This somebody better get saved because of what I'm going through right now you ever say that you should you should, instead of saying, oh, woe is me, what's going on? Look at what's happening to me. You're better off saying, man, I know you work all things together for good. I want to see it. I don't need you to get me out of this mess, but somebody better benefit from this. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me like, what are you, nuts? Yeah, I am. I am, but I'm in good company. But we also invite them in our gains. There is no success that we ever have in life that God shouldn't be the one to get the glory for. Talented athletes, right? Everybody's glorifying, wow, what a great catch, what a great run. God made you that way. Yeah, you cooperated with God, you worked out, you played, you, you, know, you practiced hard, but man, you couldn't do that if you didn't have a gift. I can't play, I, I can't dance ballet. I've tried. <laughs> I don't know why that was the first example that came to mind. But there's some people, man, it, you know, we have a friend who's a about professional level dancer, and it seemed like from day one she could do the twirly thing up on her toe. And like six years old. Wow, that's amazing. But she couldn't do it unless God made her that way. I'm not sad God didn't make I'm not, you know. That's fine. I can't draw anything more than stick figures. That's fine. I got a daughter that can draw people's faces already, and, and they look like them. I draw a face and like, what is that? You know. We invite him into those gains and say, God, you know it's still okay for people to say, wow, you are great at that, right? You don't always have to be. Bill Johnson made a great point with this. I'm going to pass on to you uh, real quick. If somebody says, wow, that was amazing. Thank you for doing that. Just say, thank you. Worm pride says, oh no, it's not me. It's the Lord, right? (laughs) Bill said, yeah, it wasn't that good. (laughs) Of course it's Christ in you. We all know that. But let another man praise you and not you yourself. Sometimes we need to remember, let another man praise you. It feels good to honor somebody, doesn't it? There's a good, it's a good practice to verbalize honor. More on that when we dig into David's life. It's a good practice to learn how to praise other people and promote them, lift them up. It's a necessary thing and, and nobody in this room, nobody here in this doesn't need it. We all need encouragement. We all need to know that, hey, I'm making a difference. My life actually does impact other people. Oh my goodness, that's not good. I'm sorry, I'm distracted by glory right now. That is the most beautiful baby I've seen. (laughs) good Lord. So just in closing, having God's heart means we run to Him instead of away from Him. Having God's heart means we remain God's friend through it all. Um, that instead of, um, in, instead of running fr- from God, having God's heart, rem- remaining God's friend through it all means we endure until the end. Remember Jesus said, he that endures until the end will be saved. There's an endurance factor to this whole thing of having God's heart. God, ha- how many of you know God hasn't given up on us? He never did. He never has, never will. He hasn't given up on us and and having God's heart means we never give up on Him. That even when we get frustrated, even when we don't like the way that He's taking us, when we say, "Hey, Good Shepherd, you sure you know where you're going? You want to borrow my GPS? You know, my I got an app, and it's got an easier way around that mountain. You, you know, that scary country right there. You sure this is the right way?" Even when we go through seasons like that, we endure. We stay faithful with Him through it all that's what it means to have God's own heart having God's God's own heart means that we value his presence more than anything else anything else there is nothing in our lives more important than having the presence of God so we're going to dig in and look at David's life but I'd like to just I wanted to share this at the beginning and make it like a foundation for understanding because there are things, like there are disciplines, there are ways to go about living righteously, and they have a time and a place. Dis- I think discipline's good. I'm not a very disciplined man by nature myself, but discipline is good. It's good to have routine. It's good to have things that become like a, like a how, how a rubber band snaps back to its original position. It's good to have a snapback that brings us back to His presence in all things. So, the first thing I want to challenge us with and have us consider is how important is the presence of God in your life? And I'll ask it the way I have proposed to us many times over the years. If Jesus was taken away from you tomorrow, meaning you have no access to him, you have none of his specific benefits, no Holy Spirit in you, none of the things that happen from having a living, dynamic relationship with the God of the universe, what would be different? What would be different? honestly that's between you and the lord if, if you had no god tomorrow would anything change at all and if the answer is you no no not much would really be different I've, I've been doing life without a conscious awareness of his presence i've been living life without a a sense of oh man he is in me right now he is here present uh in, in the middle of dark places um and if it's been a while since you since you felt that way i'm gonna ask everybody to stand on your feet Todd, would you just kind of play some music for a minute if it's been a while and i'm going to ask you for a moment of honesty because here's another quality we'll see about david he was honest you didn't wonder what david was experiencing i don't know if he shouted everything from the rooftops but david would write down his thoughts and some of his psalms are pretty intense going after god like what's wrong with you you know why'd you leave me again when i needed you the most he was honest with a walk with, with anyone begins with honesty, right? A walk with God begins in that place. No more fig leaves. No more hiding from God. The life uh, that I'm, I'm calling us into, the life the Lord is calling us as a house and us individually into, first and foremost, requires honesty. So if you're here today and you, it's been a while and you've been sensing just, just a little spiritually dry, which by the way, there's no shame in that, you understand, right? Everybody has seasons like that. All of us have seasons like that. But if you're in a season right now where you're experiencing like, I just feel like I'm getting a little dry, would you please raise your hand? We want to pray for you. Okay, lift them up high. Don't be ashamed, but keep them up. And I'm going to ask people who feel full then. If, you're not, if your hand's not up, it means you're filled to overflow. It means you're filled and you've got a river running. So circle around. Those who have their hands up right now. Go ahead, keep them up. Go ahead, guys. Let's all move. The whole church is our altar team meaning you have. Keep your hands up until you've got hands laid on you. Sometimes we can get revived just by seeking the Lord ourselves and sometimes we need it imparted to us by the body of Christ. This is what the body does. The normal condition for the Christian heart is to feel alive toward God. Even when Our natural heart feels worn out, weary, grieved, sorrowful, fearful, anxious, whatever it is. Our inner man remains alive toward God. So I bless these ones right now in the name of Jesus who have their hands lifted up. Father, I thank you for their honesty. I thank you for their integrity of spirit. Their willingness right now to receive an impartation from those in the body, not in their season right now. I bless you in Jesus' name and pray right now that God would pour out His presence on you. Your heart will remember what it's like not just to feel the presence of God, but to experience the presence of God. That It'll no longer and it won't ever go into a place of being theoretical, something I heard about, something I once knew. But new testimonies come to you now in Jesus' name you step out in faith and just continue to faithfully walk by faith and not by sight may the Lord burst out of you with a new season a spirit of revival come upon you in the name of Jesus A spirit of awakening come upon you in the name of Jesus dry riverbeds now come to life as rivers of living water spring up from the inside from your inner man not only refreshing you but preparing you again to refresh those who are around you. With the presence of the Lord that circles around you, fill you once again right now with the spirit of the living God, that you would walk differently, that there'd be a, a fresh spring in your step, a fresh joy in your heart, a fresh knowing that, that God is able to work even these things together for your good. For all of us, Lord, we pray that you would make us people who have your own heart, who live and walk in such a way that our life reflects, that our heart knows that you're with us. I pray you wouldn't allow us to go so much as two steps away from you without our heart feeling, I am missing something right now. And the answer to the question I just proposed be I wouldn't want to take another breath if I didn't have the presence of God with me. I wouldn't want to get out of bed today if I thought my God was not going before me into that day. Would you restore our first love that way? That we would live that way? That in you we'd live and move and have our being in that way? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to encourage you to just... uh, you don't have to get going somewhere. Just Whoever you're with, just encourage each other in the Lord. Just you say something, whatever bubbles up in you, to encourage one another in the Lord. There's been a real spirit of discouragement that's come upon our nations, come upon uh, many, many that I know, many even here today. Just build one another up in the Lord. Have some sweet fellowship in Christ. Communion elements are at the front and the back if you feel to do that with one another. But encourage each other before you go today. I love you. I'll see you Wednesday or else I'll see you somewhere else in the plan.